Welcome everyone to this first edition of the Brexit and Beyond podcast for 2022. And I'm delighted today to be joined not by one, but by two colleagues and friends. The person we're going to be talking to about her work is Sarah Hall, Professor of Economic Geography at the University of Nottingham, who will be known to you all, I imagine, from our events and from the excellent report she produced just before Christmas on services after Brexit. But we're also joined by the one and only Jill Rutter, so we can have a little conversation about services. So hi to you both. So Sarah, your starter for 10 is, what are services? So yeah, this is a, a great question to start off with, and I actually had to sit down and think about it, um, given that, in, which is surprising given it's what I work on. Strictly speaking, services are kind of intangible aspects of the economy. So it's not about the buying and selling of physical goods like a car. It's about intangible activities, and they're really characterised by their breadth. So it includes everything from hairdressing to insurance, IT, architecture, the arts um, and financial services. But there's a couple of important points in there. One is they're a key part and a real strength of the UK economy. Economists estimate regularly that they make about 80% of the UK's economy or around 82% of jobs. And they're also a real strength of the UK's economy. Typically, the UK runs a surplus in um, services export as opposed to a deficit um, in goods Um, and given the topic of this podcast the EU certainly prior to Brexit was a really significant services export market for the UK made up about 40% of services but if I may just return back to the distinction between physical goods and and services that's actually really murky and that's quite an important part of the UK's economy so if you think about something like a car which might be seen as a kind of quintessential manufacturing or good and I'll just plug here an upcoming report around goods and Brexit that's coming out from UK and Exchange Europe when you think about that car it actually has services wrapped up in it and increasingly so so you can think about the advertising campaign but also the finance packages that we might be using to purchase our, our vehicles and those kind of embedded services are also a real strength for the UK. Cool. I mean, given that, and given what you say about the strengths of the UK, it's really weird, isn't it? Both that services were relatively less debated during the Brexit negotiations than goods, but also I would have thought that the British government was willing to sign up to a deal that, I mean, went some way towards protecting goods trades, but really did very, very little indeed for some. I mean, why, why is that? Why don't services sort of get treated the way their economic weight might suggest they should? So I think there's an economics answer to that question and also a politics answer. So if you think about the sort of public debate around the economy, the risk of lorries queuing up in Kent or the risk of our supermarket shelves being empty is a much more kind of intuitively real risk to the wider public when we're kind of reading our newspapers, etc., than the risk of some bankers relocating from London to Paris. So I think there's a kind of public discourse around where risks and opportunities were seen in the Brexit debate and how that was covered in the public debate. But obviously, the public debate is partly a reflection of the wider political debate. And I think that's the really interesting part of this question about where services, about 80% of the UK economy, were in the Brexit trade negotiations and I think it is true that they received less attention than than goods. That surprised me for a number of reasons. So firstly, as an EU member state, the UK was central in pushing for the liberalisation of services trade Mm. within the EU single market. The UK has 
reform and history politically in supporting services trade. But I think there are a number of reasons why that kind of didn't carry on through into the, the Brexit trade negotiations. I think one is the kind of long shadow of the 2007-8 financial crisis mm-hmm. and the ways in which being seen to prioritise negotiations that would, at least on the surface, support London, potentially support well-paid financial services jobs was kind of politically quite challenging for the government. I think it also reflects the decision around free movement, the ending of free movement that was taken mm-hmm. relatively early on in the negotiations. Once the UK had decided that it was not going to continue with free movement, that changed the terrain around which discussions could be had about what Brexit might mean for services. And in particular, it meant that um, the EU was clear that the UK couldn't cherry pick aspects of single market access post-Brexit for particular parts of the service sector. Free trade in services is ultimately a lot more intrusive on, well, let's call it sovereignty, on on national control than free trade in goods, isn't it? Because you're not dealing with tariffs, you're dealing with regulations. Yeah, so I think that the sovereignty question and the way in which sovereignty was central to the Brexit process Mm. plays two ways, because it meant that these kind of economic risks around not supporting services post-Brexit was relatively downplayed because the sort of public debate was very much around the political opportunities rather than the potential economic costs of, of Brexit. But certainly when you're thinking about how cross-border services trade is managed, you're not talking about customs or tariffs or quotas. You're talking about regulation. Who can deliver that service to what standard in which country. And for the UK, Brexit became a project around securing regulatory autonomy, closely linked to kind of emphasising sovereignty. I think one of the things that was quite interesting about financial services was even before we got to the Boris Johnson government prioritising regulatory autonomy, that there were arguments between the Bank of England which didn't want to have financial services within the EU's regulatory orbit. And Philip Hammond, as Theresa May's chancellor, who was much more concerned about the loss of passporting rights, loss of single market access for UK financial services, and more relaxed, I think, about uh, degrees of sort of regulation from Brussels. So, you know, even within the UK, two big institutions were in a slightly different place. But to Sarah's list, I think we also need to add the sort of growing centrality of doing something that helps sort the Northern Ireland position. Certainly under Theresa May, that's, I think, why Chequers was really, really focused on sorting goods rather than on services. And I think if you talk to some people in the lobby groups for services, as opposed to the manufacturing, if you look at the run up to Chequers, almost the high watermark of the UK government arguing for genuinely frictionless trade for goods, they would say that they failed to achieve the same degree of cut through with ministers, partly because it's very difficult to send your camera crew to show pictures on the news of problems with services as opposed to at a manufacturing plant or whatever. It's much more tangible And they definitely felt that they were failing to get that degree of resonance that the manufacturers had managed with the threat disruption to just-in-time supply chains and things like that. And also with that 80% figure, a lot of services are non-trade. Sarah mentioned hairdressing and things like that. 
all those sorts of services are non-tradable. Actually, the volumes of trade in goods are higher than the volumes of trade in services. That said, you know, clearly it was in the UK interest to get a good deal on services, and the EU's interest to get a good deal on goods, which is where they ended up. The other thing that strikes me, Sarah, about this is one of the sort of rather lazy assumptions we make about it is services is what they do in London. Uh, and that sort of fits into a bit of a narrative about, you know, all those bankers, all those whoever it might be in London. They're not our priority in the post-Brexit world. But that's, that's slightly misleading, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really important not to see services as just the London and the South East issue. It really isn't the case. So there's really significant clusters if you take financial services activity in cities across the UK. So asset management in Edinburgh, fintech and insurtech in Belfast, credit card businesses in places like Northampton and Swindon, banking mid offices in Bournemouth. These towns are reliant for employment purposes on financial services, as well as the wide spend in those cities. Also, whilst London was booming as a financial centre throughout the the 2000s, a number of cities, places like Birmingham, for example, identified growing their financial services sector as a key strategy for local economic development. Birmingham's had a number of successes in that regard, so Goldman Sachs has um, a significant presence in the city. So these kinds of policies will need to be thought out as London's position changes in the kind of international financial system. I think when, you know, obviously the discourse at the moment is very much around persistent regional inequality and and levelling up, but levelling up is a two-sided equation. So what goes on in London does make a a difference to what happens in our regional um, towns and cities. Sarah, do you think, I was quite interested that one of the arguments, certainly on financial services, that the city had a lot of potential weight with their European counterparts was that the EU would really be cutting off its nose to spite its face if it denied its businesses access to the very liquid UK capital markets. And that actually, you know, in the same way as we expected sort of German car makers to ride to the rescue of a deal on goods, ultimately the EU would want to cut a good deal on UK services because they couldn't really substitute for what the UK could offer. Why didn't that have sort of more weight in the end? Was that always a misapprehension on our part? Or what do you think? The UK downplayed the appetite the EU has for developing its own competencies in financial markets and particularly around capital markets. But that's not to say that capital markets has been um, straightforward for the EU. Far from it. It's got quite a long history now of trying to develop its own um, capital markets union and it's still you know, countries like Germany are much more reliant on bank-based finance than capital market finance than the UK. But I do think it's the case that some large financial institutions now are urging some degree of caution about the extent to which they can rely on the EU financial services architecture as it currently stands. And I think that's partly why we haven't seen the mass exodus of jobs and financial markets activity out of London to the EU that some predicted prior to the end of the transition period. In the report I mentioned that you've done last year, you talk a lot about the impact of the TCA. What can we say at this point about how Brexit more broadly has impacted on services and on our services trade with the EU? So it's partly about the TCA and and what that has done for services, although that's much more limited really in its impacts for services than it is for goods. And that reflects the fact that free trade agreements typically do much less 
to liberalise services trade than they do goods trade. So if we want to understand services trade post-Brexit, I think we need to look at the impacts of the TCA. We need to look at questions of labour market mobility and migration. And that comes to the point about this critical element of services being who delivers which services where. We also need to look at the extent to which the UK is securing a Brexit dividend through its Mm -hmm. newfound regulatory control post-Brexit, as well as any opportunities that are arising for services from new free trade agreements or economic partnerships that the UK strikes with countries outside of the EU. There's those kind of four main dimensions in play. The way in which they impact services depends quite a lot on the service sector that you're looking at. So, for example, in a service like legal services, which is really tightly regulated, the key question there is, you know, are legal qualifications recognised in the country that that lawyer wants to practise in? I think the other thing to say about services trade and Brexit and what we can say now is that we're only in the early stages of seeing the economic data of that impact. There's a lot of work going on in this area at the moment. It does look to be overall economically negative more so in some sectors than others and here it becomes very hard to untangle covid impacts from brexit impacts so for example something like the transport sector and um, they're showing really significant declines currently ditto hospitality but clearly that's partly wrapped up in um, the economic response to covid restrictions so i would say that we need to look across a number of domains we need to look at specific services But I think we also need to be really aware that we're only in the early stages of seeing how this new regulatory landscape, which is essentially what Brexit means for lots of tradable services, you know, hasn't even been fully developed within the UK yet, let alone knowing what that's going to look like in the medium and longer term economically. If we dig down into financial services a little bit, I mean, the first thing I suppose of note is this issue of equivalence. We've been quite generous in granting EEA countries, I think, equivalence in 27, 28 areas. The EU have granted us equivalence in two. I suppose the question comes in two parts. Firstly, can you just tell us what equivalence is and what it means? And secondly, explain to us this seeming disparity between the generosity of the two sides. Equivalence became one of the sort of buzzwords on financial services and Brexit. Mm. And it's really a response to the end of passporting. So as an EU member state, UK-based financial services firms could service EU clients from their UK-based under passporting. And this became quite a significant element in the ongoing development of London as Europe's leading financial services centre. Passporting ended Mm -hmm. um, when the UK left and the main mechanism now available for market access for UK firms into the EU is an equivalence decision. Equivalence is where the EU makes a decision that in a specified part of financial services activity, UK regulations are equivalent to their own, and therefore UK-based firms can operate in that area. So there's a number of differences between equivalence and passporting that broadly mean that it's definitely not a like-for-like replacement, and in many ways it makes market access more difficult. So as you mentioned, equivalence operates in specific areas. It doesn't cover the whole gamut of financial services. And some kind of core banking activity, for example, isn't the subject of equivalence Hmm. decisions. It's not permanent. So under the EU's equivalence terms, 
they can withdraw equivalents with 30 days notice. I think it's important to note it's not a sort of a process of negotiation. It's a, it's a decision made by the EU about the UK's regulatory approach and vice versa. In terms of how the EU has approached equivalence for the UK, it's taken a cautious approach, I would say. <laughs> so despite the UK being within the EU's regulatory orbit up until the day before departure, so at that point, you would assume that the UK was equivalent because yeah. it was in the same um, regulatory landscape. Despite that, the EU um, only granted the UK two time-limited equivalence decisions. So one for derivatives um, clearing, which will expire in the summer of this year, and one in the area of Irish security mm-hmm. settling, which was for six months and has now expired. So this is quite striking because mm-hmm. the UK is now operating with far less market access through equivalents than what you might see as other comparable financial centres like New York, uh, which has 21 um, equivalence decisions when I last checked, or Singapore, which has 15. And I think that difference suggests that the EU's approach to the UK is being motivated by concerns about developing its own competencies in financial markets. So Sarah said cautious. You might think aggressively hostile. I was going to say aggressively mercantilist. Because surely, objectively, there was actually very little case for not giving the UK equivalents. And remember, those equivalent decisions were due not after the TCA was signed. Both sides had agreed that they would try and make the respective equivalence decisions by the middle of 2020. So before we had the finalised TCA. And what I'm very intrigued by is whether Sarah thinks the UK was naive or making a statement when the Chancellor announced the UK's new equivalence regime and gave those equivalence decisions to the EU before they'd handed the UK the much more valuable equivalence decisions for the EU market. I mean, although it wasn't a negotiation, both sides had to make those unilateral determinations, but the UK got out ahead. I thought the Chancellor's statement then was really, really interesting because every sentence the Chancellor set out in the UK's new approach, you could read as an implicit criticism of the EU's approach. You know, the UK would be transparent, code EU is very opaque, the UK would be very collaborative, EU, no, no collaboration here, guys, we do it ourselves, our way, and we'll tell you at the end, the UK would aim for stability, whereas Sarah said, the EU very much prizes and rejected attempts by the UK to have a more stable regime incorporated in the TCA with longer notice periods, you know, the UK said, yo, this will be sort of pretty stable regime and things like that. But I was quite intrigued that the UK thought that it was a good thing to do in terms of signalling its wider intentions to develop London as a global financial centre to make that decision. I think in November 2020, while the EU one was still outstanding, I'm just really interested in Sarah's insights into why that appeared to be the right way to go for the Treasury and the Chancellor. I mean, so I agree that that document really does read as a a set of implicit criticisms of 
the, the EU's approach to equivalence. You know, in addition to your list, Jill, it also is absolutely explicit that withdrawing equivalence will only be a last resort and will follow kind of dialogue to try and make equivalence work. So it's really starkly different. I think the thing that struck me about it is two things. One more kind of in a more kind of popular note is that it almost read like the sort of big brother financial centre saying, you know, we're the serious player here and this is how you should do equivalence was the kind of first take home that I, I took from it. But the second one and the one that I think resonates more now is that for me, it was a really early indication of the Treasury articulating what it thought London might look like as a post-Brexit financial centre, in that there was a real emphasis on international openness, transparency, and this idea of London as a kind of genuinely international hub. I think that's really interesting because London often gets um, compared to New York, for example, but in some ways, they're quite different financial centres. New York can rely much more on the US domestic market to support its financial services activity. The UK's domestic financial services market is much smaller. So it was really kind of rehearsing a, a trope that's been in the history of London as a financial centre for you know decades, if not hundreds yeah. of years, as a kind of really genuine, international, open, transparent financial centre. And I think that's something that's then come through in the subsequent um, documentation we've seen around regulatory reviews, regulatory opportunities for Brexit, this kind of repeated refrain that London's going to try and position itself um, as a kind of internationally open, competitive financial centre. So for me, that equivalence decision was interesting, both for what it said about the EU, but also what it said about um, aspirations for London post-Brexit. I don't want to let you off the hook here, Sarah, with the sort of original question, which is, on the equivalence thing, I mean, you know, both of us sort of picked up on the fact that you said the EU was being cautious. Isn't there a sort of convincing argument that the EU is actually being rather aggressive? The EU sees this as an opportunity to wheedle business out of the United Kingdom. They could have been a lot more generous because, as you say, our regulations are the same as theirs. And this is just hardball mercantilism. Nothing more, nothing less. I would agree with that if pushed that the EU clearly <laughs> sees opportunities for its own financial services sector. I think there's also a regulatory dimension here in that it's an unusual position that the EU now finds itself in to have its own trading block, but the kind of supporting financial centre being offshore, being essentially outside that regulatory orbit. That That is not a common economic setup. When you look at other large trading blocks, that, that is just not what you usually have. And it's understandable that there are kind of regulatory risks associated with that. But it does appear that the EU is pushing much more on the opportunities for its own financial services sector and as a result of that. And how successful that's being, I think, yeah. is, is possibly another set of issues. One of the bases of Brexit and one of the bases of what the Chancellor is saying about the City of London is that there's real scope for the UK to do things differently when it comes to regulation. And financial services is one of the few areas where we're starting to see, at least in what the Treasury is saying, what some of those ideas might look like in terms of green finance or fintech or wholesale sales and things like that. There is the outline of a skeleton of a plan for doing regulation differently. I suppose the question tied to this is, is there real scope here to see some kind of Brexit bonus for the UK? Rishi Sunak has outlined his new plan for financial services, which identifies essentially new sectoral opportunities for post-Brexit financial services, particularly in green and fintech, and also new geographical opportunities 
for Brexit outside of the EU. I'm sceptical at the moment as to the extent to which they can offset reduced trade with the EU, certainly in the shorter term. So if you take the geographical aspect first, you know, research repeatedly shows that services trade is greatest with your nearest geographical partner. And that's despite the kind of rise in kind of information technology, email, Zooming, etc. So that does suggest that it's going to be challenging to kind of increase significantly services trade with places like Singapore and Australia um, and Japan, places that the UK's got either regulatory dialogues with or, or new trade deals with. I think the other element where the UK's trying to use regulation to stimulate a, a Brexit dividend, if you like, is around these new sectors, new-ish financial sectors. So fintech would be one and green finance would be the other. If I maybe take those in turn. So in fintech, it is true that the UK is quite a significant fintech hub and was before Brexit. So regularly seen as kind of second behind the US in terms of investment um, in fintech. And some of the regulatory approaches which were used to support that, particularly in what's called a sandbox, which was a kind of experimental space for new financial startups to, to operate in, was pioneered in the UK and then was replicated in other markets. But there are some risks, I think, for, for fintech, and partly it's highly reliant, or has at least to date been really reliant on EU nationals working in London. So this is where the question of migration, skills mm. and mobility figures. And I think it's also the case that some financial services activities are kind of high fee, high value. So something like clearing, for example, would be an example of that. And that might be the sort of financial services activity that you want to hold on to and mm -hmm. um, post-Brexit if you want to support London. Other aspects of financial services are perhaps lower value, lower fee, so some like mid and back office banking functions. So the extent to which kind of focusing on WYSI fintech can usurp kind of established high value, high fee losses through, through Brexit, I think it is more questionable. And that actually feeds into the, the sort of question of whether London's losing out to European financial centres. In some ways, you could actually say that, that London's doing quite well because it's holding on to quite a lot of the high value, high fee activity right. um, so far. Green finance is another really interesting one. Both fintech and green finance, I think, are important because they sit quite well alongside other policy priorities for this government. So around mm -hmm. a kind of digital economy and around net zero. And clearly there's a lot of energy around green finance in the run up to the COP in Glasgow with various announcements around sovereign green bonds, etc. I think the, the note of caution here is that, A, the EU is actually quite a significant player in green finance. And it's one of the areas where the EU does demonstrate what I think you could call kind of international leadership, particularly around the standards that it uses to determine what is green, what's called green taxonomy. The EU has been a really big player in that and has established some quite significant dialogues with other notable actors, particularly China. So to an extent, the UK is partly playing for catch up there, but also having multiple definitions of what is green for green finance is going to be quite costly to businesses. It's widely agreed in the industry, I think, that you're going to need to have international collaboration around what green standards are for green finance. Clearly, the UK at the moment would like its version of green standards to become both that internationally leading taxonomy. But that's going to require collaboration. 
including collaboration with the EU. So I think that's the challenge for, for green finance. Is there no kind of first mover advantage? Because one of the things you hear from Brexiters quite a lot is the EU takes ages to decide things. And on, on this question of what is green and what isn't, the EU is currently engaged in a fight about nuclear, whether it's green or whether it isn't. But by acting first, do we gain any kind of advantage or ultimately do we have to end up working with the EU and settling on definitions with them? Actually, in financial services, I think there's an element of first move advantage, but I think there are other mechanisms through which you can influence international regulatory standards. One is by your own track record of being a highly respected, well-regulated financial centre. And you do see reference to that quite a lot in the Mm -hmm. material that comes out from the Bank of England. Um, And that is an area where I think London does probably have advantages over European centres. And the other mechanism that the UK has used quite successfully in the past and and is trying to use again in terms of green finance is to position its approach to green finance as essentially the one that international financial standard setting bodies should use. So you kind of influence the EU in this respect, not bilaterally between the UK and the EU, but the UK tries to shape international standards that then the EU has to fall in line with. So I think there are different mechanisms in play in terms of how you try and shape kind of global standards in in international finance. And I guess given the UK's aspiration in this area, it's not surprising that they're really emphasising their track record and their ability to shape international norms and standards rather than emphasising the first mover advantage, which I think in green finance, the EU does um, mm. have the edge over the UK currently. Um, Sarah, just coming in there, you mentioned Australia and Singapore as two of the places that the UK might be trying to increase trade with, but it's, it's quite interesting. They seem to be trying to build some new relationship with Switzerland. I don't know whether that's a sort of an attempt to build some sort of counter-EU, European uh, financial services sort of, heavyweight by, if you like, sort of surrounding the EU with the other non-single market financial services centre in Western Europe. What might come out of that? Yeah, that one's really interesting because one of the um, possible outcomes of that is a, a passporting agreement between the UK and Switzerland. So automatic recognition essentially of each other's regulatory standards. And that would be really important to watch because that would be a case of passporting outside of the wider mechanics of the single market, which the EU had surrounding its own um, passporting um, arrangements. And I, I do agree with you, Jill, that um, given the sort of dominance of Zurich, particularly in um, financial services and London, if you had a kind of close working relationship between those two financial centres on the periphery of of the EU. I think the EU would be watching that very closely in terms of what that might mean for the continued centrality of London to Europe's, greater Europe's and financial services landscape. So in some ways, I suppose I find that dialogue more interesting and potentially more important when we're trying to think about post-Brexit UK financial services than what's going on in in Australia, for example, or or Japan. So for you, at least, Brexit and its implications is far from done. It seems that there's an awful lot for you to keep your eye on going forward in terms of our regulations, domestic impact, how we trade services with other countries. It's been enough to keep you going probably for the rest of your career, I thought. 
That's a really interesting question. Yeah, obviously there's loads to keep me going. I better say that for my employers. But I think the really interesting question is, you know, throughout, from the kind of 1980s onwards, when financial services really took off under Thatcher and Big Bang, the UK's political economy has had a kind of tacit understanding of where the city sat and mm. what financial services were doing in the UK's political economy. Yeah. And even under New Labour, there was where you, you might imagine there might be more criticism of a kind of deregulatory financial services sector. You know, the tax receipts from financial services were being recycled regionally, essentially, to fund wider welfare programmes. So I think the bigger kind of political economy point for me that's really interesting is that I think Brexit has, to some extent, unsettled the position of London within the UK's political economy. And it, it's further unsettled by a focus on, on levelling up and where London sits um, in that. So I think when I'm tracking what's happening for services, and particularly financial services, I'm also really interested in, in where financial services ends up in the UK's political economy and what that means for kind of enduring questions for the UK, like how related are financial services yeah. to the so-called real economy? Have they been divorced? You know, what do financial services contribute to or not in terms of levelling up or addressing regional inequality? I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's political economy in the full sense. That is to say, what is the political weight of this sector and where does the government see it fitting into a rebuilt, sort of built back better, if you like, economy that everything seems to be up for grabs, which is one of the amazing things about the moment we're living through. But Sarah, that was utterly fascinating. We could have talked for ages about this, actually, because there's so much I need to learn. But for those of you who are interested, do check out Sarah's report that is on our website on services after Brexit. We look forward to reading your writings on all these issues that you've raised with us today. Thanks ever so much. And Jill, thanks as ever. Thank you.